What did your daddy look like? Like me, but bigger. What did he like to eat? Ham. This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. On this special two-part episode, Erin and Elizabeth take a look back at seven seasons of Matthew Weiner's iconic TV drama Mad Men set in the 1960s. Listen as they follow the development of Sally Draper and how her relationship with her enigmatic father Don mirrored the relationships they had with their own fathers. Is there a more iconic theme song than that besides maybe the Cheers theme song? A lot of theme songs get stuck in your head, but Mad Men's is certainly tied to its visuals. Mm. Just like a catchy advertisement, the illustration is of a man falling out of the sky Mm -hmm. from a large skyscraper. And I think a lot of people really expected the series to end with Don's suicide jumping out the window or being pushed out of the window. I mean, that would have just been too on the nose. Matt mm-hmm. Matt Weiner is a lot of things, but I don't think he would have ended it like that. No, and he did not. And people who wanted it to end like that are stupid. <laughs> just kidding. Mad Men was a TV drama on AMC from 2007 through 2015. The creator, showrunner, writer, director, Matthew Weiner, who had started out on other shows. You may have seen The Sopranos, Mm -hmm. most notably. And it follows the lives of many many mad men. Many advertising executives at the fictional agency Sterling Cooper Draper Price. Mm -hmm. It begins in 1960 and takes us through the end of that decade. So every season covers about a year and change. We see the culture through the lens of these characters and how it changes and grows. As was the case at the time, the women were secretaries, Mm -hmm. 90% white. And the men had all the power and were 100% white. The civil rights movement and the advancement of women in the workplace is reflected through that environment, which is to say progress is slow and mostly about its fashion. The African-American experience is not part of the show except to show how racist, sexist, ageist everybody was in this world at this time. Yep. It's kind of interesting. One of the arcs is with Peggy Olson, who starts as a secretary and becomes the first female copywriter at the agency and then even gets promoted by the time the show ends at around 1970. And Pete tells Peggy on the last episode that if she keeps it up, she'll be an art director by 1980. <laughs> <laughs> 11 years from now, yeah, you'll be going places. So if she, might, she might get that. So the 60s really were obviously a time of great change in America. You and I sort of relate to these characters 
as we would our dads, but in real life, our dads would have been Don Draper's daughter, Sally's age. What do we love especially about Mad Men? For me, it's the show that best captures and makes me feel close to my late father, who was an ad man. We watched all seven seasons again, or at least the episodes that most centered on Don being a father. Mm. Don Draper is an enigma. He is a man introduced to the series and to viewers as a high-powered, young and cocky businessman, powerful, has a girlfriend in the city, smokes a lot of cigarettes, is talking about the Lucky Strike account. Mm -hmm. He visits his bohemian girlfriend in the village. Right, this is the very first episode. You're watching it and you think, this guy. martini lunch. Yeah, he has quite the life. Then he goes back to Westchester on the train and you find out (gasps) he's actually a a father <gasps> and, oh my. and husband with a wife named Betty and totally. kids that he's putting to bed. So we know that he is a liar mm. and not necessarily a villain at all. We know that he has a double life for sure. Whether We don't know the extent of the double life, which certainly develops over time. But out of the gates, you know that he's leading two lives and that his wife probably isn't on to him necessarily or or consciously on to him. Right. Because by episode three, we find out that Don isn't Don Draper, that he is actually someone named Dick Dick Whitman. Whitman. Hot. His name is literally Dick. Dick. I mean, you know, it's the show is an English major's dream, really, Mm -hmm. I have to say. It's incredibly psychologically astute. There are no accidents in Mad Men, in the writing, in the set design, in the costumes, in the dialogue. There are no false notes. The premise is that he was fighting in the Korean War slash well, something. Well, his platoon comrade was yes. killed in action. Whose name was Donald Draper. And he takes his dog tags and he takes his personal effects and right. he makes a deal with the real Don Draper's widow. Please, can I... I need to act as if I am this person. I'm going to assume his identity. I'm not a bad man, but I need to remake my life because he is escaping a horrific childhood that includes all all manner of abuse that is uncovered over time. Over the course of the series, we learn about the reality of where he comes from, and it starts to make sense because pretty early on in the series, you see him switching the dog tags out, identities, and then very slowly and Mad Men famously took a lot of time between seasons it wasn't like they would come back immediately the next year the next quote season like I think there was a full year two years even between one season or year and a half oh right because of Matt Weiner's uh, perfectionism right and there was something with AMC too where they got into a a fight with them about if they were thinking about leaving AMC at one point maybe right because Matt Matt Weiner was a fussy dude and needed everything to be his way. Yeah. And because the show was so powerful and beloved and Emmy-winning, he did get his way. But yes, Mm -hmm. there were several standoffs between network and show creator. Yeah, and so you'd be the viewer at home was waiting Um, to get to 1965. Right, and waiting, (laughs) waiting, waiting for a long time. And so when you watch it, 
on Netflix now or stream it, you know, it's super tightly done. But like watching his trauma develop over time as a viewer in real time, it's way more nuanced and you almost forget like what he's been through. He's like, what, 30-ish when the show starts, 32, something like that. I know he Uh, turns 40. Yes, he's supposed to be in his mid-30s, I think, when it starts. Betty is his stay-at-home wife, mother of his children, a former fashion model Mm -hmm. who went to Bryn Mawr, Mm -hmm. right? She's still wearing her Dior gowns around the home Mm -hmm. that she had in the late 50s, the Dior new look. They live in Ossining, which is very chic suburbs. Mm -hmm. They have a daughter, Sally, who turns six on the third episode mm-hmm. played by Kiernan Shipka. Yeah, Kiernan Shipka. She's so, so good. One of the best child actresses. Of, child her, of ar- any actors. generation. So, so, so strong. And then there is a little brother named Bobby who's like two or three or something. Mm-hmm. And one of the running jokes among fans is that they cast a different Bobby in every possible <laughs> scenario. A- Bobby doesn't appear a lot, but they use a different actor every time because he just cannot. They had some fits and starts with Bobby, <laughs> and they didn't really <laughs> the Bobby that they ended up sticking with. It took him a, a few seasons, I want to say. The Bobby it ends with is in the picture until like season four or three. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. None of these Bobbies. The Bobbies keep famously getting switched out. And then later, a couple years later, there is another baby Gene, a Mm -hmm. son, who just exists. When when the show ends, I think he's about four. Yeah. After, like, season three, there's a divorce. Right. And Betty and Don. You immediately see Don's infidelity. Like, the viewer immediately figures out that he's cheating on Betty on the first episode. Right. And then everybody knows it because it's part of the lifestyle. Part of this this ad man, New York expense account and apartment in the city lifestyle yes. that we're seeing. American sex retiree. You know, <laughs> everything is done for these men. Mm-hmm. They are coddled. They get to get shit-faced at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They get to go on airplanes and be in private first-class accommodations and smoke on the airplane and Mm -hmm. sleep with the stewardesses. (laughs) I feel like there's, in the second season, the Three Sundays episode that we'll talk about later, it starts with them talking about marriage because Pete has just gotten married to his wife, Trudy, and, and the way that they're talking about it is so empty and, you know, know that you're married now. They're a little more kind of this moral, younger world that are like actually think they're going to make their marriages work. Unlike Don who and Roger, who are just doing whatever the fuck they want to. Yeah. Um, and then Trudy calls, his wife calls him and asks him what he wants for dinner. And he's feeling very important. Mm-hmm. But at the end of that episode, you see Pete who's now having to go home to his wife's have dinner when all of the rest of the, like, young singles in the office, including Peggy, who he's had this kind of secret tryst with on the side, who ends up with them having a son together that we never necessarily even know that much about besides its existence. Well, she gives the baby away, and Don Draper helps her conceal the secret. Right. She Um, doesn't want to see him. So that's kind of cool because she, the character just secretly has a love child of her boss, not Don, 
and goes to a hospital, has the child, and then gives it over to be adopted so she can stay in Manhattan and be a career girl. There's no in-between. It literally never comes up again, except as a vehicle for Peggy and Don to trust each other. Peggy, listen to me. Get out of here and move forward. This never happened. It will shock you how much it never happened. And so the psychological underpinning theme of all the seasons of the show is a man, a human, running from their past, trying to bury their trauma, trying to escape it by drinking it away, by having sex to forget, by making as much money as possible, by constantly moving forward, Mm. which is something that Don says quite often through the arc of the series. This never happened. Power through life with all of the coping mechanisms that you just described, which are kind of still the greatest hits of how we cope, even now. It's not a just, this was before people had better therapy. People drink, people have sex, people overwork, people... Smoke cigarettes. People smoke cigarettes. Longingly outside <laughs> on the The various stoop. compulsions and isms and whatever you want to call them that we all reach for to not have to deal with. We really wanted to focus on Don Draper and his role as a father to particularly his daughter, Sally, and his mentee, Peggy Olson, who is the only other female in the cast that he isn't sleeping with and respects besides his daughter, Sally. That's interesting. Yeah, it's I've, we definitely honed in on on Sally and Peggy as the two women who kind of know him the best that he really shows himself to. You astutely pointed out that they're the two major characters who he doesn't have sex with. I guess he doesn't have sex with Joan, but Joan's sexuality is sort of like a perfume. What are those? Yeah, An atomizer. He... Her sexuality is like <laughs> atomized across the office. That's like, Roger's girl. It touches everything. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's just like a given. Well, he he is capable of respecting women is the point, I think, in, a, in the most misogynist of worlds. Mm-hmm. In an ad agency where men call their secretaries honey. And sweetheart. And sweetheart. And yell at them as if they would their, their mothers or their wives or their daughters. It's funny. I was the editor of Paper Magazine during the time that Mad Men was on and during the height of Mad Men mania and a lot of things that I googled <laughs> for this for this conversation led me to paper links because I was clearly just assigning stories that I was interested in, including we did an astrology piece where we did the star charts of both John Draper and Dick Whitman. Come on. Yeah, so I know from, and written by Abby Schreiber, who's now the editor of paper. Shout out to Abby. She's still there. Don Draper, I think, is born in 1925 or in. That's right. Or, sorry, Dick Whitman is born in 25 or in the tw- in the mid-20s, mid to late 20s, which would have made him technically old enough to be our father's fathers. Right. My dad was born in 47. Mm-hmm. Your dad was born in 49. Yep. So our dads would have been the age of like a Sally older brother. Right. But yet we experience this as someone watching this show. There's so much that the fathers and the parents are doing on that show that my parents would have never dreamed of doing. 
going mm-hmm. that had like been culturally stamped out by that point. Right. Um, however, I think we both connected over the fact that even though it skips a literal generation, if we're basing it off of character ages versus our dad's ages, yeah, there's still so much to Don that reminds us of our own fathers. I mean, my dad was an ad man, and although in Cleveland, Ohio. Fabulous. He opened his own agency, which was called Azure Blue. Ooh. And I think that was in 1972. So Mad Men ends on the cusp of 1970, right before that bell-bottom renaissance. And I just thought it was funny that my dad's first account was high-low rolling papers, get high on low prices was his first favorite, you know, slogan that he came up with. What a tagline. Get high on low prices. Get high on low prices. But by the time 1980 came around, he was the quintessential ad man where you're wearing a three-piece suit to the office and carrying a briefcase Mm -hmm. and shaving close to the face. Mm -hmm. Like no more funky mustaches or long hair. And your dad was a was a newspaperman. My dad was a newspaperman, exactly. He was a writer for the newspaper and he started in Iowa and then my parents moved to Arizona when my sister was about two and the late or maybe if she was old she was younger than that. They moved to Phoenix in the late seventies and he started working at the paper there and he worked there until he died in 2018, April of 2018. So he had a 40-year career there. Yeah. Did you see your dad having to sort of shift along with the times because he worked in advertising to, like, know what was cool? Absolutely. I mean, he because he was an ad man, to me that meant that he was all-knowing because he created commercials. And commercials, especially back in the days when you had a little box television and four channels was God to me. Mm-hmm. And that my father could produce a commercial. He talked about producing and meeting Mr. T once. What? Or Mary Lou Retton, who he worked on, you know, like a Revco commercial yeah. with was just like, holy shit, I got to get to New York. And also just the lifestyle of he had a secretary. Oof. Chic. It was chic. Mm -hmm. I wanted to grow up to be my father's secretary because I found that they had the best fashions. Interesting. On television and in real life, those heady times when your dad take your daughter to work day. <laughs> did you did you go to your dad's office? Yes, we went to my dad's office. We, we was he get... so proud of you? Like showing you around or was he more like don't get in the way? Probably both. My dad was a total softie. When it came to my sister and I, at work, he played the role of the sort of like cantankerous newspaper reporter who was tough on his staff. He worked his way up. He was a city editor and worked basically all the desks there were at the newspaper when I was a kid. And then he would always have like a few younger reporters who reported to him that he would, you know, I would hear him yelling at them on the phone. I remember vividly. Really? Eating breakfast with him one morning. And I want to (laughs) say it was Valentine's Day. 
Because I remember that we were sitting together and he had kind of stayed to drive me to school. And it was like a special. My parents would put out little presents for us in the morning on Valentine's Day. It was just like a card or some little like thing or whatever. Yeah. He was reading the paper and he was so pissed because he found, you know, either a headline that he didn't like. It was something that had to do with Mike Tyson. And he called the paper and he chewed out whoever answered the phone and was and told me before he did it. Honey, cover your ears. <laughs> and you were like, giddy up. And I was like, let's do this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was chaos at the newsroom. And it was like everything you saw in the movies with clicking computers and everybody had PCs and sort of like, or maybe, I don't think they were doing anything on typewriters then, but very important and cool. And my dad seemed like a big deal there. So it was thrilling to go there. But at the same time, I also had the feeling that you see also on Mad Men, which is sort of fraternity-esque. There were certainly a lot of women working there, but I remember when he would take us and either he would do it or some young cool person would like show my sister and I around and there was always oh don't look at that like you know but oh (laughs) you didn't see you know that the word calendar the topless calendar (laughs) you know somebody is a fucking idiot written on the wall or pencils pencils thrown into the drop ceiling you know this and that but yeah it was so exciting to go and when you saw your dad's secretary, secretaries in the office, I mean, you mentioned you wanted to be his secretary. Were you yeah. like, that is, that's the career yeah, I mean, my that mom, I see myself doing? My mom was literally a homemaker. Yeah. Like, that's what she would refer to herself as and wasn't able to, like, go on to get work of her own until I was, like, late teens. So I just automatically equated her lifestyle as loser. Mm -hmm. Like I knew I wanted to work and I knew I wanted to be like my dad because I wanted respect and I wanted fame and power and to get to be the one to make the decisions, which is a line that Peggy says to the man she's having an extramarital affair with on his end when he won't leave his wife for her. Someday you'll be glad I made this decision. Well, are you lucky to have decisions? He's like, this is the best decision for me. But it's like women couldn't make decisions. Right, women had no options, really. So it was that and the fact that I wanted to wear silk blouses like Mm -hmm. Maddie on Moonlighting. Oh, yeah. So there's that. There's that superficial kind of connection to him. How else were our dads like, Dawn? Advertising Mm -hmm. is lying for a living, just like being a novelist or... He used to talk about the ad campaigns that he was working on and how frustrating it was because the clients didn't know what they wanted or they thought they did, but they were wrong. Mm -hmm. And how this job of advertising, don't do what I've done. If you have talent, don't work in advertising. And... I knew that he was a good writer because he got paid to write happy or to come up with concepts that appealed to the masses, but he didn't believe in any of these products. Like, mm-hmm. he always, he ha- he still maintained that part of himself, I guess, that had some kind of semblance of authenticity and self-respect. Like, this is not art mm-hmm. that I'm making. Although I sort of see a lot of advertising as art. Totally. In the way that it does reflect, you know, the whole Warhol thing. But he also was lying 
to his family and to himself about who he was and his own fallibility. He was prone to rages and just was very moody. And while he didn't drink to excess a lot into my memory, he used marijuana secretly as a way to control his moods and so was either stoned for all of my childhood or really angry because he wasn't stoned Mm. in that moment. So there's a lot of scenes throughout the show where Don is drunk and avoiding his family and running away from responsibility or generally checked out or so drunk he's in a good mood and that's when he's able to express his love better. And I really related to that shit. Same. Hard same. I mean, my dad did struggle with alcoholism his whole life. I think I'm really lucky that he wasn't someone who was abusive. Yes, he did call his staff and scream at them on the phone, but it sticks out to me because that's not something that happened all the time. Yeah. But he never really, you know, was a tough dad on us in in that sense. Like, he wasn't a yeller. He We didn't get hit. You know, we were actually very supported and encouraged, my sister and I. But the hard thing about reckoning with all of that, like his good dadness, is how much alcoholism is intertwined in it, especially towards the end of his life. It really started to overtake him. But, you know, I started to notice it when I was about 12. And I think about that from time to time, whether or not it got bad and then I noticed it or if it was always, you know, a thing. And I just got to an age where I was like, oh, that person's drunk. Which is the story with Sally. Right. So from age 6 to 13 going on 14, let's call it 14 because, damn, she's she's old uh, she, for her age. She's an old soul. She's an old soul. Poor baby. That is what she is trying to figure out. What is real? Who are men? Who are mm-hmm. parents? What is life? And she takes on that role to constantly question Authority. I think one of the reasons why both of us wanted to talk about it specifically for the show is that I so, so relate to her character at like 13, 14 to see her sort of reckoning with it at the age that I was also reckoning with it. And I think you were also in that age range of coming into what is this? The fallibilities of not only adults but of men and of a man that she has had on a pedestal her whole life you yeah. know she's definitely seen the cracks but it's it's awfully familiar i think so many people out there yeah experience a similar sort of realizations about their parents and in these eight time frames to see it shown on television so beautifully yeah. It's still, I, you rewatch these episodes and it's it, so moving it still. It will be forever. And that is why it's so brilliant that it is a period piece. I think people are always going to have the same struggles with like facing who they are and facing their weaknesses. Absolutely. Whether or not it's set now or a hundred years ago. It's hard to see yourself. You need to have, you need to do it through the other people around you. Mm-hmm. And Sally is his mirror. Let's get into it a little bit with with Don as a dad. Don, in many ways, is a is a really good dad mm-hmm. in my mind because he refuses to hit his children. Yeah. <laughs> There's one episode in particular wherein Betty, after a long day at home with the kids, Don's been away at the office and now he's back 
home for dinner and she is in a mood. Bobby does something to annoy her. He spills milk at the table and Betty's like, Don, do something. And Don is not the hitting type. So he takes Bobby's toy robot and smashes it into mm-hmm. the wall, mm-hmm. scaring everybody. And then Don runs up the stairs with Betty going after him while well, Sally and Bobby sit at the bottom of the stairs and listen to their parents argue. That's it? I said to him, wait till your father gets home and that's what he gets. Go to sleep. He knows he did something wrong. First the shenanigans with the washing machine and now the record player. Don, you have to do something. He needs a spanking. How else is he going to learn the difference between right and wrong? That's not the way it works. You think you'd be the man you are today if your father didn't hit you? What's Betty's reaction in that moment? She she pushes him. She pushes him she back. She pushes him physically, in her, like by the shoulders. Mm-hmm. And he pushes her back to show her, don't fuck with me. Mm-hmm. Because I do have all that rage. I just choose not to hit. And then we learn it's because at the same time, Betty apparently learns that her husband was horribly abused by both his mother and father. How about you're going to help raise these children? Not be one. Bet, you do whatever you want. It's not about what I do. He's a little kid. My father beat the hell out of me. All it did was make me fantasize about the day I could murder him. I didn't know that. And I wasn't half as good as Bobby. It's a fascinating scene because it shows the mores of the day where you got to keep that kid in line and that a father's ability to do so is wrapped up in how sexually attractive he is to his wife sometimes in that moment. Yeah, and that's that shoving scene, January Jones. But she's so good in this role. And when he pushes her back, she's sort of shocked. But she's also sort of enticed. Yeah. It's a weird exchange. Earlier in that episode, which is called Three Sundays, Don comes home from work and Betty is like, Bobby's been really bad today. He broke the hi-fi. And what I love about- Which is a record player. Which is a record player slash radio, I think. Yeah. And Betty's kind of waiting like, oh, let's see it. Let's see what happens. Don's going to go into his room and yell at him, really give it to him. And he just walks in, he opens the door and he He says, Mommy says you broke the hi-fi. I believe her. Don't do that again. I won't. (laughs) That's it. Effective. It's effective. But what I love about what I love about that exchange is that he calls Betty mommy. Like I think there's a lot of instances where Don refers to himself to his children as daddy and to to Betty as mommy. It's not your mother. And it's not in a creepy like they call each other mom and dad in front of their like, did you ever grow up with people whose parents did that? I hate that. So creepy. Yeah. But there's something really tender and and I think sweet about the fact that he knows that he's talking to a little boy and he says mommy in that moment. I think it's really nice. Yeah, there's so many intuitive human moments when he's parenting that I think Betty lacks, which is what saves him from being a bad father to being a good father. Right. The other thing 
about Three Sundays with Bobby is that after Don throws the robot and he and Betty get into the shoving match, Don's sitting in the room collecting himself and Bobby comes into the room. And it's this really incredible scene because it's so moving. Dads get mad sometimes. Did your daddy get mad? He did. What did your daddy look like? Like me, but bigger. What did he like to eat? Ham. And this candy. It tasted like violets. And a beautiful purple and silver package. What did he do? I told you, he was a farmer. But he died. A long time ago. You have to get you a new daddy. The little boy that plays Bobby in that scene is so good. I mean, he only, he disappeared after that episode yeah, or that season. Never, never see that version of Bobby <laughs> never again. Never see that Bobby Nor do we again. need to. But it's such a good exchange. I think it, it hits in also to like, you know, so many people grow up not knowing their grandparents, not knowing their parents, but also not knowing their grandparents and the mystery around what was your dad like and telling him that we have to get you a new daddy. It's such a, a sweet, I wrote transcendent sadness in my notes. Yeah. Because I think it's also a signal to the viewer that Bobby knows that Don is important to him. He knows that he likes having his own daddy and he wants his father to have a daddy. Well, kids that young are generally not empathic. Some children are. Mm -hmm. And Bobby clearly was in that moment when he asks his own daddy about his daddy. It's incredibly tender and sweet. And And we get audio of John Hamm saying, Ham. Ham. John Ham. You talk a lot in your book about being hit growing up by both your dad and by people who weren't your parents and that that was something that was sanctioned. That was my experience was like anyone can hit you if you're misbehaving as long as they're adults. Like when I was six and the the lady from the church babysat me to keep me in line. And that's something that you see in this episode in the first season with Sally's birthday party. We're done. Supposed to go out and get a cake for her. And he disappears. And earlier in the episode, he's shooting people at the party with a Super 8 camera. Yes. And he sees... Or there's one scene where one of the kids at the birthday party, who's we can imply is six years old, is running through the house, which is full of adults having cocktails, mm-hmm. and bumps into one of the dads or one of the grown-ups. Who's, who's not his father. Who's not right. his father. And that man grabs him by the lapel and slaps him across the face mm-hmm. and says, stop it. Mm-hmm. Reprimands him just for being there. Right. For, he knocks something over, I think. And then the kid's dad comes into frame and says, you want some more? Right. Yeah. Doesn't he say that? He does. The exchange is, is really upsetting because you watch it and you think like, oh, you wonder what the, a child's actual father is. It's Yeah, his, you don't know. His father is Carl. This is um, their neighbor, Francine. She's like a busybody and also like always kind of checking Don out, which is funny. And her husband is this sort of toad 
named Carlton, and they have a son named Ernie. And Ernie's the little boy in the scene that gets slapped. So you think that Carlton is going to step in, maybe, yeah. and say, don't hit my kid. But that's but not what happens. It's the opposite. And that was the message when I was a kid in the 80s, too. Your body is not your own. If you mess up, you will be punished. And any adult can be the punisher. And my dad was also really fond of the phrase, you want some more? You know, you want me to give you something to really cry about? Like, after you've already been punished, it's like you're not, you have to form the stiff upper lip. Mm-hmm. Do you remember him because you have two little brothers. Yeah. What is the age difference between you and your brothers? And was he, like, quote, rougher with them because they were boys? Or was it no. equal opportunity? Like Sally, I was the oldest mm-hmm. with two younger brothers with five and seven years between us. So I like to think that I got the brunt of the child-rearing fuck-ups. But they also were punished. But I think I came along so much earlier than... They did. And it definitely wasn't gender specific. Yeah. I don't think. I think it was more about just like a loss of temper Mm -hmm. in the moment. So I can relate more than to that guy's neighbor than Don in that moment. I watched that scene last night, so it sticks out to me. But Carlton, the grand scene's creepy husband, who's the boy's father, is like, you want some more? And the guy who hits him is like, no, that's okay. We can back off now. Thanks. But also, and I can't remember the dialogue, is he makes some reference to having fought in the war, too. Something about... Interesting. Germans. Um, something about Germans. <laughs> It's by Judy Bloom. By something about Germans. <laughs> by Judy Bloom. It's one of those quick kind of scenes where you immediately know watching it. This guy is a vet. He yeah. has darkness in him. He's seen combat. He yeah. has his own shit. That's why he's hitting a child. The reactionary, right. I'm not in control of my own reflexes. Yes. They would call it reflexes. Being out of control. The whole episode in those moments of birthday party are about mirroring and about mm. children mirroring their parents. And there's like a funny bit of dialogue that you kind of have to be listening for when all the kids, Sally and her friends, are outside playing. And one of the is overheard saying, I don't like your tone to the other. Right. And it's just like perfect. They're playing house and it's the play 60s, house. and that's how adults talk. <laughs> you dented the car. I like sleeping on the couch. I don't like your tone. Take your shoes off. Like, it's very <laughs> genius. It's very much, like, absorbed dialogue from their homes. Yeah. And in that episode, too, the Sally birthday party, it is a moment of good father dash complicated exclamation point. I'll say. <laughs> that's what that's, what my, no- that's what my notes are. He's supposed to go get a cake. Don is supposed to pick up the birthday cake. That's right. the one job he has so for the episode. All of the kids are at the house. Betty is stressed. Don goes to get a birthday cake and never comes back to his daughter's birthday. Which, like, just thinking about the reality of that is insane. You send your husband out to pick up the cake. a cliche. It's like the man who goes out for cigarettes and never comes home. Right. But he actually comes home. He does come home. We see him literally at a crossroads at the railroad track crossing. He's waiting in his car. Mm -hmm. We can tell he's been drinking. He's smoking in the car. 
car and there's a cake sitting next to him. But then it cuts to a scene of Betty. Everyone is long gone. She's washing dishes with her Playtex gloves on. With her dishwashing gloves on. And her hands are shaking Mm -hmm. in anxiety and burgeoning rage. Mm -hmm. And she she's simmering with she's smoking with those gloves on. Yep. And suddenly, Daddy Don comes home with a full-grown family dog with a collar on it. It's a golden retriever that he has clearly stolen from someone's yard, (laughs) although it is never acknowledged. Nobody asks about it. The dog does appear again, but it just, he stole somebody's dog. You pointed this out to me yesterday when we were going through our notes for the show, and I never, I remember noticing saying and it's like the times that I've watched that episode over the years been like oh he didn't get her a puppy he got her a grown dog that's yeah. that's as far as my mind went in that moment but you're so right why yeah. <laughs> where did he get a completely full grown earlier in that episode in another thread with another character Don is having an affair with a new woman Rachel Menken <laughs> the owner of a department she's the daughter of the owner of a department store right right and they're he, gonna his agency is gonna help He's married, and she's the one he can't have, but there's this attraction. She doesn't even know he's married yet, and they share this kiss and a moment on the roof, and she tells him her life story about how all a girl needs is a dog that she can rely on because she has dogs in her life, let's just say. And if you weren't paying close attention, you wouldn't realize that that was an allusion to that earlier scene, the fact that he gives his six-year-old daughter a dog to replace himself. Right. Yeah, Rachel Menken says something like, a dog is all a little girl needs in her life. I think talking about the dogs, too, like, I love the birthday party episode because it kind of hits into too like one of the things we've thought about with this doing this podcast but also people that I've told about our podcast they're like well what about moms like dads are always the heroes and I feel like they are these maddening, mysterious figures in our lives. Don could disappear in Sally's childhood memory. The reality is that he disappeared for several hours and left Betty hanging, and she didn't know where he was. But Sally's memory is going to be that he showed up with a dog, and that that was the best birthday she ever had. Amen. <laughs> and That's so right. dads often get to swoop in and do those things and be the good cops. But dogs appear later on, and they in the form of Chauncey. The Irish setter who belongs to Duck. That's in the episode Made in Form, where they get made in form as a. In season two. In season two, yep. Made in form the bra. The bra brand. And Duck, who is an ad exec there. And a recovering alcoholic. And a recovering alcoholic, sober. Someone who's gotten sober. His wife comes to drop their children off for the weekend with him. That episode resonates a lot with me because when he sees Chauncey, Chauncey's this fairy. He's an Irish setter, which is like, a I don't know. Giant, giant dog. A giant dog. Madison Avenue. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a fancy people dog, but also you would see like an Irish setter. I don't know, hunting or like yeah, maybe like something a, a like Ralph that. Ralph Lauren ad. Totally. Uh, Hunter Green. It's a, it's a hunter. It's the Hunter Green of plaid. dogs. An Irish setter is the Hunter Green of dogs. So, yeah. It but sits on a plaid sofa and it's not allowed. Exactly. 
Chauncey resonated with me because my family grew up with a standard poodle that was completely incongruous to who we were as a family. We were very middle class. We were messy. We didn't have nice things. We weren't poor, but we weren't rich. And we had this totally... It was a fancy dog. It was a fancy dog. My parents got him from a breeder and they got a deal on him because he came with a hernia. And so my parents, he was discounted. We agreed to have it corrected and they got him for a discount. Anyway, it was always funny to see my dad with Louie, our standard poodle, because when he would get groomed, they would give him the traditional poodle cut and he would always have like ribbons in his hair and my dad would immediately take them out and be like, God damn it. Yeah. And get upset about the sort of feminization of this very... A show dog. So there's this scene when Chauncey comes running into the office, Duck greets him and says, you smell like a girl. (laughs) (laughs) When he hugs him and I was like, The hair is so glossy and red and long. It just, we can, yeah. It's like if Joan were a dog. So... Tell the people what happened. Oh, God. So Chauncey ties in so beautifully to the sadness of divorce in the world of Mad Men in, in general. Chauncey, it turns out, is there with the kids. And Duck clearly really loves this dog, and the dog loves him. And the kids reveal to him in, like, a sort of, like, tense exchange that their mother is getting remarried. And the reason that the dog is with them is that she wants Duck to take the dog. It's a good scene in that the guy who plays Duck does a good job of just sort of, like, just letting it slide off of him. He's clearly stricken, but he just kind of keeps the conversation going. But you see that he's totally heartbroken, and he's in the office alone. Very few people are there. He's a recovering alcoholic. He goes into an office. He's holding a bottle of bourbon or, or something. He's about to take a drink of it, and it cuts to him looking at the dog and the dog looking at him, and he can't do it. He puts the bottle down. And you're watching it, and you're like, that's a little cheesy like you know like oh I can't do it um while my dog watches me I'm too ashamed but you know it being mad men what does he do he takes Chauncey down to the lobby and he releases him into midtown and he turns around and he walks back into the office fighting back tears he never stops to look back at Chauncey who's standing there confused and then but the camera does because Chauncey barks Chauncey barks like what are you doing and then he and then he glides off into the night into the midtown the idea of a silky red-headed oversized adult dog a Abandoned on Madison Avenue mm-hmm. in 1962. I know. It's shattering. It's shattering. And the fact that <laughs> you see, but that you see Duck walking back and trying not to cry. And then after that, his character relapses and starts drinking again. But Chauncey is, I think, a fascinating, it's a good example of the subtle ways that divorce affects family down to dogs. Um, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Not, not, how, it aff- not how it affected <laughs> Chauncey, but like how like animals are dealt with once a family breaks up, like who gets the dog, I remember yeah. was like kind of a thing. It's Everything my is parents property and, splitting. Right. Yeah, my parents got divorced when I was 15, but there was never any question that my mom had similar to what you were saying before, my mom yeah. had custody of me and the dog stayed with us, even though he really had a bond with my dad. I mean, he had a bond yeah. with both of my parents, but he had a strong bond with my father. 
In the same episode, Maiden Form, there are a couple of scenes involving mirrors where one of the characters will look himself in the mirror. And it ends with Don looking at himself at the mirror. But earlier in the same episode, it's Pete, who (laughs) is a newlywed, but will continue his philandering because he needs to in order to feed his ego. He has a quickie affair with a Maiden Form model. And there's a scene where he looks at himself in the mirror post-coital, mm-hmm. and he feeling very spiffy mm-hmm. about it. And the camera kind of lingers on him. He smirks at himself. Smirks, smirking at himself. And in the same episode, across town, in what I like to think is the Pierre Hotel, <laughs> he has hate sex with this woman that he's having an affair with. And she is try- she is talking about his reputation around the office for being a player and being great in bed. Mm-hmm. And it triggers a memory for him of being basically molested as a child. He grew up in a whorehouse by one of the prostitutes, and it is needling at him because he has issues with what we would call hypersexuality, like compulsive sex. He cannot not do it but he's angry at this woman and he wants her to shut the fuck up so he ties her to a bed and leaves the hotel leaves her tied up and then he goes home and he's sick what does he say to her when he leaves though i told you to stop talking and then he walks out and he walks out and then he goes home and soon after he is cleaning himself up because he still smells like sex and he's still (laughs) the next morning is it the next morning but i remember him being hungover and he's just in a really shitty mood and he's shaving the next morning contemplating his image in the mirror and Sally sneaks in and does that cute little daughter thing that I think all little girls remember doing if their dad had facial hair which is perching on the toilet or next to the sink and watching daddy shave and she says I won't say a word I don't want you to cut yourself So he is getting what he wanted all along, which is silence from a girl for the first time. And at the same time, he's acknowledging that. Looking himself in the mirror is disgusting to himself. It's a really crazy exchange. Sally's looking at him adoringly. And she says, I won't say anything, Daddy. And then he starts disassociating. And she's like, are you okay? And he tells her to leave and sits down. I'm not going to talk. I don't want you to cut yourself. Are you okay, Daddy? You know what, Sally? I think you better leave me alone. End of part one. Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at TMAYF Podcast and on Instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather. Call our hotline at 888 318 DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888 318 DADS. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donoher. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum. 